And then Jesus said there was a man who had two sons. There was a man who had two sons. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The Bible is scandalous. I mean, absolutely scandalous. The first two human characters in the Bible, Adam and Eve, they spend the majority of their time completely naked. They only decide to cover themselves with a handful of fig leaves once God tells them what they've really done. The patriarch of the faith, Abraham, he passes off his wife, Sarah, as his sister on more than one occasion just to save his own behind. And David... David, the one who brought down the mighty Goliath, he killed 200 Philistine men just to cut off their foreskins in order to present them as a dowry so he could marry the daughter of the king. It's scandalous. Pick it up and read it sometime. It's crazy. And that's just three stories from the Old Testament. When Jesus shows up on the scene, things get even crazier. He eats with all the wrong people. He heals all the wrong people. He makes promises to all the wrong people. And for a while, in the midst of his ministry, he attracted everyone. The good and the bad, the rich and the poor, the holy and the sinful, the first and the last, the tall and the short, the fat and the skinny. But at some point, things began to change. The crowds start leaning in a direction that we might call undesirable. All the tax collectors and all the sinners were coming near to listen to him. The tax collectors were Jews who profited off of their fellow Jews. They took from the top to make their own nest eggs for themselves while their their fellow countrymen, they suffered under the dictatorial rule of Rome. And sinners? Well, just imagine in your head your very favorite sin. And that's the kind of people who used to hang out with Jesus. They are the ones who gathered near in his ministry. Not the respectable Sunday morning crowd that we have here at Cokesbury United Methodist Church. Not the folks who sleep comfortably at night knowing that their padded bank accounts are safe. Not the people who jockey to the highest positions in their community. No. Jesus attracted the people that we would probably repel. The tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the good religious people, the people like us, they were grumbling among themselves. And they were saying, this Jesus is bad news. He not only welcomes sinners into his midst... But he has the audacity to eat with them. So Jesus told them a story. Now, if you haven't discovered this by now, well, then let me tell you yet again. Jesus loves to tell stories. Everywhere he went, among all the different people with all their different problems, he would bring his hand to his chin and stroke his beard. He'd listen and he'd say, you know, I've got a story for that. And this story, the one that he tells to the grumbling religious authorities... The story that is perhaps the best known among all of his parables is through which the whole of the gospel comes to light. It is not an exaggeration to say that this is the most important story that Jesus ever told. And just about every time we retell it, we get it wrong. We ruin it. And it's so scandalous. Listen, there's a man. He has two sons. One day, the younger son gets the bright idea to ask his dad for his inheritance right then and there. He doesn't have the patience to wait for his old man to die and get what he wants. And the father, for some strange reason, agrees. He splits himself. He turns it all over to his boys. He effectively 
kills himself, ends his own life right then and there so that they can have what they would have had when he died. To the older son, he gives him the family business. And to the younger son, he cashes out his retirement package and gives it to his younger son in crisp 20, 50, and $100 bills. The older son, he remains at home. He takes care of the family business. He does that which is entrusted to him. And the younger son, the one who demanded all the money then, he runs off in a fit of joy with his deep, deep, deep pockets. It's only a matter of time before the younger son has squandered his entire inheritance. Maybe he blew it all at the blackjack table. Maybe he threw it away in empty bottle after empty bottle. Maybe he spent it on women. Regardless, it gets to the point that he is now far worse off than he was before he asked for the money. He starts stealing food out of garbage cans. He sleeps underneath a tarp in the woods. He showers in the sinks at gas stations. And then one day, he comes to himself. He realizes the error of his ways, and he also realizes that he could return to his father, to his brother. That even if they didn't forgive him, maybe they would allow him to start over. Maybe they would give him a job. Maybe they would give him a house to sleep in, some food to eat. So he begins to practice his confession in his mind. Dad, I'm so sorry for what I did. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Would you please help me? Would you please give me another chance? And he decides to hitchhike home, all the while practicing his speech under his breath, wondering if his father will buy it or if he'll slam the door in his face when he gets home. And the day of his hopeful reunion arrives, and the younger son is so nervous about what will happen that he's pacing in back and forth in front of his father's house when all of a sudden he feels someone tackle him to the ground in the middle of the street. And it takes him a moment to realize that the person who tackled him is crying and is kissing him and squeezing him. So the younger son rolls his assailant over only to discover that the one who tackled him was his father, that he is crying profusely. And that he's got a giant smile on his face. So the son opens his mouth. He prepares to offer his practice speech. And his father takes his hand and he covers up his mouth. And he says, I don't want to hear a thing you have to say. It's time to have a party. So the dad grabs his youngest son by the collar, yanks him up off the ground, and they head over to 7-Eleven. They buy all the beer. They buy all the ice. They buy all the hot dogs, all the taquitos, and they go back to the house for a party. The dad gets out his phone. He starts tweeting and texting and emailing every contact he has. Come over. My son was dead, but he's alive. My son was lost, but he's found. It's time to celebrate. So they get to the house. They crank the music up to 11, and they have a party. Meanwhile, the older brother. Remember the older brother? The older brother... He's in the backyard mowing his father's grass. He is sweating all over his face and all over his body, and his mind is just running through the list of all the things he still has to do for his dad. And then he looks up, and he sees in the window figures moving back and forth inside of his father's house. So he shuts off the lawnmower, and as soon as the lawnmower shuts off, he can hear there is music playing. He can hear people singing inside of his father's house. So he approaches from the backyard and he looks through the closest window and he sees that a party is happening. And not only that, he sees his father with his arm around his good-for-nothing little brother. And the older brother decides to go home. Hours pass. 
The father's having a good time. And he realizes that his eldest son is not there. So he tries to call him, but there's no answer. He tries to text him, but there's no response. It gets to the point that the dad gets in his car, drives to his older son's house, and he starts banging on the front door. When the older son opens it, the dad says, Where have you been? You're missing the party. And the older son says, I'm missing the party? Dad, when have you ever thrown a party for me? I've been like a slave for you for years. I took over your business. I drive you to all of your doctor's appointments. Heck, I was even mowing your lawn this afternoon. You've never done a thing for me. And yet my brother shows up. And you throw him a party. And not just that, you invite the whole neighborhood. You've never done a thing for me. And before he can continue with his litany of complaints, his father smacks him across the face. And the father says, you big, dumb idiot. I gave you everything that you have. And what do you spend all your free time doing? Taking care of an old man like me. And I never once asked you to do any of that. But dad, no, don't you butt dad me right now. This is important. All that matters is that your brother was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost. But now he's found. But you, son of mine, you are the one who's really lost. The only reason you didn't come into the party when you heard what we were doing is because you refused to die to all these dumb expectations that you've placed on yourself. We're all dead inside and we're having a great time. And yet you, you're alive and you're miserable. So do yourself a favor. Firstborn, go ahead and die. Drop dead. Forget about your life. And then maybe you can finally come and have some fun with us. The end. That's it. That's the whole story. It's like the, the credits are starting to roll now. The end. And we know what we're supposed to make of the story. We know we've been like the younger brother. We've ventured off into the unknown world. We've made stupid choices. And we've had to hope that we will be received back home. We know, too, we've been like the older brother. We've been disgusted by how some people get all the good stuff, even though they don't deserve it. Some of us have even been like the father, praying for a wayward child or spouse or family member or friend, hoping they'll come to their senses and return home. Just about every single time we encounter the story, whether it's in a sermon or a Sunday school class or in a book or in a movie, because this is the archetype for so many stories. Whenever we encounter it, there's one point that is made. See yourself in the story. Find the character with whom you most identify and then make a change in your life. If you feel like the younger brother, make a change. If you feel like the older brother, make a change. If you feel like the father, make a change. But when we tell it that way, we ruin the story. And the reason it ruins the story is because that when we do it that way, we make the entire thing about us, when in fact, this entire story isn't about us. It's about Jesus. If the story were about us, then it would actually get an ending. But this story doesn't have an ending. If it were about us, we would learn whether or not the elder brother decided to go into the party. But we don't know. It ends with him outside arguing with his dad. If the story were about us, we would discover whether or not the younger brother stayed on the straight and narrow path after he came home. But we don't get to know that. 
If this story were about us, we'd even get a scene of you know, the father bringing his sons back together for the first time. But that's not there. Jesus doesn't give us the ending that we might be hoping for. We don't get to know what happens or to whom it happens. Because that's not the point of the story. Do you see it? This is as scandalous as it gets in the Bible. Because no one gets what they deserve. And the people who deserve nothing, they're in fact the people who get everything. The father loses his life for his sons. He gives himself for them for no other reason than that the younger son wanted it. The older son loses out on all that he hopes for by doing all of the right things, only to not be rewarded for it. And the younger one, the one who squanders the inheritance, he gets the party of all parties just because he showed up at home. This story, straight from the lips of Jesus, in it we catch a glimpse of the great scandal of the gospel. Jesus dies for us whether we deserve it or not. The most important character in the story is none of the humans. I didn't even include it in my version, but when Leah was reading it, kill the fatted calf. That's Jesus in the story. He exists for no other reason than to die so that people can be brought together and rejoice. Jesus dies for us whether we deserve it or not. Like the younger son, we don't even have to apologize before our Heavenly Father is tackling us in the streets of life, showering us with love. Like the older son, we don't have to do a thing to get an invitation to the party. This story, whether we like to admit it or not, it ends before we want it to. We want to know what happens next. We want to know if the older brother goes to the party. We want to know if the younger brother stays in the right path. We want to know. We want to see the father relaxing in his lazy boy with a cold one in his hands, watching his sons reconcile. But the fact that Jesus doesn't end the story with an end shows us that what's most important has already happened. The fatted calf has been killed. It has been sacrificed so that the party can start Jesus has already mounted the hard wood of the cross so that we can let our hair down, so we can kick our shoes off, so we can crank the volume up to 11, so we can take all the beer and the ice and the hot dogs and the taquitos out of 7-Eleven. We were lost, past tense. We were lost, but now we are found. That is the only thing that matters. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.